Hello and welcome to Sunday Messages with Fairmount Friends Church. We're so glad that you are joining us. You can find out more on www.fairmountfriendschurch.org. Here's Pastor Andrew Hale. Well, last week was a pretty heavy topic, pretty heavy message. For those that maybe didn't know about it, it was all about sin. That's pretty much the reaction I anticipated. Sin, <laughs> right, not a popular topic, not a fun one, a, a bit of a struggle to get through, if you will. And as Brock and I spoke coming out of that, he just really wanted to focus in on that connection before correction, and where is that relationship at? So whether it's with us and God, or it's with us and another person, whatever those relationships might be, are we seeking connection with those people? Do we seek connection with the Lord? And in that place, correction can be better received, correction can be better given and granted. And so, do we believe as humans on this earth, that we have a need more deeply ingrained, more interwoven in the very fabric of creation. We do not have a fully fathom of the depths of our distance from God. Or to summarize pretty much all of last week, it's to say that we are separated from God because of sin, and there is nothing that we can do about it. So what can be done? What do we do with that? Do we just say, all right, Jesus, we have a need. Jesus, meet it. Or is there more to it than that? Is there a narrative that God has interwoven throughout our lives, throughout Scripture, throughout history, in order to better understand, in order order to make sense of why in the world is death the way? Why in the world is blood necessary? Why in the world is sin even a thing, God? Why would you not just make it so everything is amazing? Let's go back to the garden. Let's go back and enjoy. We're not worried about sickness and disease. We're not worried about payments and insurance. We're not worried about all of these different elements of life. And you just go back to the garden. So we're going today. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Where it's the start of Holy Week where Jesus turns towards Jerusalem and he has the triumphant entry. And we know that just a week later we have this Jesus who's supposed to be this amazing teacher, miracle worker, is now hanging from a tree. God, where are you in that? So we're going to attempt to answer some of that today and look at the crucifixion and to look at Jesus' entry and to say, God, how in the world does this correlate with the exodus of the people from Egypt? How is the Passover involved in this? What is the Passover? And so when I was young, my grandparents built a home in Vonor, Tennessee, and it was a quiet community. They built a yellow house. I'd never really liked yellow on a home, but that's what they went with. They didn't ask my opinion for good reason. I wasn't building the house. But it was right off of hole 14 on the golf course that was a part of that community. And as we would go and visit this home, we would go on lots of different adventures, whether it was venturing over to hole 14 to putt and then get out of the way when somebody was driving, or if it was going to Pigeon Forge, which wasn't too far away, or we was going to visit Ruby Falls and experience the caves and caverns of God's creation, or maybe it was riding horses on trails in the mountains, and somehow every year, my youngest sister, who's five years younger than me, always ended up on the biggest 
horse that we would always go on. One, I was jealous, and two, my mom, I was always terrified. Why are you putting the smallest girl on the biggest animal as we go on these trails? And Jesus came riding, and not on a horse, but on a donkey. But we, maybe you do know, maybe you don't, is that this was actually foretold 500 years prior. So Zechariah 9, 9, and it's announcing the coming of Zion's king. And it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah is a prophet, and Zechariah claims this, and we fast forward then five centuries to Luke 19. And Jesus sends his disciples ahead and says, go in and find this animal and bring it back. Don't ask questions. Don't ask permission. Go in. This animal's going to be here. Nobody's going to have it ridden it, and you're going to bring it back here. And so the disciples, having seen a whole lot of crazy, wild stuff, said, all right, Jesus, okay, if you say the Lord needs it, then we'll figure it out and we'll make it happen. And so Jesus comes riding in on this donkey, not a majestic horse, but on this donkey. And I like pictures of Jesus with a smile on his face because he really liked life. He still does. He really liked people, and he still does. And so Jesus journeys into Jerusalem, fulfilling the scriptures, riding a donkey, and he comes in riding a donkey not only to fulfill what has happened, but to fulfill what is to come. He knows what he's going into. He knows what he's stepping towards. He knows what is about to go down. And he says, Lord, okay, now is the time. The time is now. And so in the early chapters of Exodus, the Israelite people are slaves in Egypt. And they have become slaves because their forefathers needed to find a place to live. And they started growing and were such amazing and working people that they became feared by the Egyptians. So the Egyptians, instead of like becoming buddies with them, said, no, we're going to abuse you. We're going to put you into slavery. You're going to work for us, and you're going to know about it. And so these people are now ready. They're waiting. They cannot wait to be saved by somebody. And so Moses comes into the scene, and Moses has the burning bush experience, right? And then he goes, and he goes before Pharaoh, and he mumbles and mutters his way through it, and he talks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses repeatedly, time after time after time, as there's frogs, and there's locusts, and there's these different famines, and blood, and the water, and what in the world is going on, God? And yet Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, refuses, even as plagues tear across his kingdom. He hated to let the Israelites go. Growing up, I showed Cheviot sheep in 4-H, and Cheviot sheep are known for having a bit of a, an extra bend to their nose, kind of a Roman nose. And so my first sheep, my first year, right, I'm about third grade-ish or so, which means I was, what, 10-ish? Is that, is that about right? 10 or 11, somewhere in there. And so I had this beloved Cheviot sheep, and he was my pal. This isn't him, but he does look a lot like him. And when the end of the season came, for those that have been a part of 4-H, you know what's going to happen. I did, but I didn't really know what was going to happen. 
but I didn't want to let my sheep go, right? I had raised this thing. I had sheared this thing. I had gotten angry whenever he kicked me. I had had to clean, and we, we sheared, and we did all these different things to take care of this animal, and I wasn't ready to let that guy go. But that was the arrangement, right? That was what was foretold to happen. So he and I stood in that auction as numbers rang out, and I didn't care about the numbers. All I was doing, I was focused on my final moments with that sheep, with Roman. I'm feeling a little bit of something. Maybe there's some healing that needs to go on there. I'm not sure. I'll call my mom on the way home, and we'll figure it out. (laughs) But God, in response to Pharaoh's refusal, instructed every household of the Israelite people He said, you must select a year-old male lamb without defect. And then the head of the household was to slaughter the lamb at twilight, taking care that none of its bones were broken, and apply some of its blood to the tops and sides of the doorframe of their home. And God said that when he saw the lamb's blood on the doorframe of a house, he would pass over that home and not permit the destroyer to enter. So any home without the blood of the lamb would have their firstborn son struck down that very night. Pretty heavy stuff, right? To defy God directly, as Pharaoh did, and get to the point where God said, all right, you've defied, you've said no, you've denied, and so now something must happen. My people are going to be set free, so I'm going to do something about it. And so he frees his people, those who had faith in the Lord, Adonai, put their blood, the blood of a lamb, across the doorframe. And God passed over those people. And so the Old Testament Passover lamb, although reality in that time was literal, was a mere foreshadowing of the better and final Passover lamb, that is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus entered Jerusalem with the triumphal entry. Palm branches are waving. There's raucous cheers of this guy is coming. He's going to take us away. He's going to free us from the Romans. We're going to be all about this thing. This guy is where it's at. And he comes in. Funny enough, Jesus comes into Jerusalem right before the Passover festival. It's like God's got an idea of how this thing is going to work. And so he has this Passover festival. Another word for Passover, if you look at the Greek, is called the Eucharist. And you, if you break the word down, you, E-U, is good, and charis is gift of grace. So the Passover was a good gift of grace. Or if you look at past, it would have been that it was an original Passover of mercy, and a good gift of grace is to come. And so this original Passover helped explain why death is the way for God to redeem his creation. Because you see, God's narrative God's story, the one who he wrote and we are experiencing daily, is all about God's delight. Delight in his name, delight in his glory, delight in calling out for himself an unlikely people who will make their boast only in the Lord. And so God's story, as we get to read it in Scripture, as we get to read about it even just through history outside of Scripture, as we look at how has God woven these things together, these pieces, these elements, how do we know that he has promises that he will not break? And not only promises he won't break, he will ultimately fulfill. And how do we even make sense of that then? How do we reconcile that? How do we deal with that? Because God says, I want my glory to be preeminent. 
But as humans, if we are sinful, we are incapable of glorifying God. We are dead in sin, right? And we must be redeemed. And as Pastor Brock described last week, we are dead in sin and there's nothing we can do about it. We don't just need a doctor. We don't just need some meds. We don't need just a nurse. We need a defibrillator. We need to be brought back to life. And there's nothing that we can do to do that. Thus, to fulfill and his delight, to fulfill his desire, God designed a restoration of relationship with his creation. And the design required an innocent death. And it required an innocent death because a just God must punish sin. As following that, a just judge is only just when he renders justice and penalty for sin. And as follows, God's holiness and justness required him to hold accountable and to punish wickedness. So we've got sin and we are separated from God because God must punish. But he's only just when he renders penalty for that sin. So again, he must punish. And because he is holy and because he is just, he is must hold accountable and punish not just creation, just because it feels like it, not on a whim, but because it is wicked. Totally depraved. So maybe you've heard this before, maybe you're not, but the punishment for sin is not just separation from God and we just kind of make do with whatever we've got and we go through life and we sell homes and we buy whatever and we do whatever and we just experience life and we go through business and go on. And we just wrestle through it and figure it out. But no, it says the punishment for sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says. So a judge who pardons lawbreakers is not a righteous judge. Likewise, overlooking sin would make the holy God unjust. Even the good works, if we were to try and pay recompense, and we would say, God, I know I messed up. God, I'll do these things. Is that enough to make up for it? I will pay the payment if you'll just tell me what the payment is. And he says, I will tell you. It's death. Well, I don't know if I really want to pay that one. Right? I'd rather, I guess, experience life. But compared to God's goodness, even all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Even all the good works we do, we feed the poor, we take care of the needy, we make sure our neighbor's all right, we take care of helping clean up communities. We can do all of these good, amazing, wonderful things, and if we do it without God's goodness, in his view, because he is holy, it's like filthy rags. So again, there's nothing we can do. We are completely cut off. We cannot save ourselves, and God must punish sin and the resulting wickedness. There's a series of books that are children's books, but they're called The Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket. You may have heard of them. I was growing up around the time that these books were coming out, and I kept reading them, hoping that by the time I got to the end of the 13th book, there would be some sort of satisfaction to come to the end with. And for those that don't know, The Series of Unfortunate Events is about three children whose parents are killed and they then have to figure out how in the world to do life when they've got these wicked people chasing after them for their lives and for their inheritance. 
So they go through the drudgery of all of this reality. And as I said, I'd hope there'd be some form of a satisfying conclusion. I'm going to spoil it for you. There's not. (laughs) Or it wouldn't be called a series of unfortunate events with a satisfying ending. I was left wanting, which is the exact result of our reality, right? As we go through life, there's no sunshine and rainbows. There's no change of heart by the enemy, and now we're going to be okay. There's no happy ending. There's just life. And so God's justice made it necessary for Christ to live the life he lived and die the death he died. So the question you may think of, the question I know I think of often, is but how can God, who claims to be good, who claims to be loving in all of these fancy Christian terms, he claims he loves us, he claims he loves his son, why would he send him to live as a human with the narrative to die, with the intent to die? How does that bring him delight? Another way to say it would be, did the death of Jesus bring pleasure to God? I didn't know, so I did some reading. And so again, God delights in his name. He delights in his glory. He delights in calling out for himself an unlikely people who will make their boast only in the Lord. And so Jesus humbled himself into the form of a human, lived the life we never could, and then sacrificially accepted physical abuse and death, punishment not his to own. But it was not for his own sin that the Father bruised him, right? Jesus didn't have that, and yet the Father bruised him. God bruised him because he wanted to show us mercy. He wanted to forgive and heal. He wanted to demonstrate how good he actually is to say that, Even when you're separated, I love you. And I not only that, I want to bring you back into the fold. I want to save and rejoice over you with loud singing. So God is righteous. His heart was filled with a love for the infinite worth of his own glory. And we were sinners, and that means that our hearts were filled with God-belittling affections. And so to save sinners and at the same time magnify the worth of his glory... God lays our sins on Jesus and abandons him to the shame and slaughter of the cross. So another part of that answer, and just, just bear with me, we'll get through these pieces and then I've got another story. Another part of the answer is the depth of the son's suffering was the measure of his love for the father's glory. So the depth of the son's suffering was an indicator of his love for the father's glory. And it was the father's righteous allegiance to his own name that made payment for sin Necessary. When the son willingly took the suffering of that payment on himself, every footfall on the way to Calvary echoed through the universe with this message. The glory of God is of infinite value. Not just a little bit, not just because it feels good, not just because God just wanted it to happen, but because it was an indicator of the depth that Jesus would go to, that God would go to to say, I'll give you the lowest of the low. I will experience the worst of the worst so that you can experience the best of the best. And it was not God's whim that we could not be with him. He holds the righteousness of his, of his name in the utmost regard. 
But the penalty for sin extends beyond our physical death, right? So often in church and so often I know we focus on the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, and and I don't know how much stock you take in it or not. But it includes a spiritual separation from God. And again, in this matter, Jesus took our place. Part of Christ's agony on the cross was a feeling of separation from the Father as he bore the sins of many. Another way to put it would be that which he hated with his whole being was poured out upon him. And so when the Father forsook the Son and handed him over to the curse of the cross and lifted not a finger to spare him pain, Even in that time, he had not ceased to love the Son. In that very moment when the Son was taking upon himself everything that God could give out, everything that God hates in us, God was forsaking him to death. And even though the Father knew that the measure of his Son's suffering was the depth of his Son's love for his glory, and somehow in that, God took great pleasure to say that I see that need and I'm going to do more than meet it. I'm going to supersede it. And I'm going to say in that as Jesus is struggling on the cross, how good is my glory and what's about to happen after? Because the cross is not the end, right? The cross is just the next piece. And next week we're going to get to what is to come. Growing up, specifically when I was a teenager, I really got into enjoying Rocky Balboa. <laughs> the Rocky movies. And so, in that time frame, my dad was the one that I really connected with over this. For some reason, not my mom or my sisters, but really connected. So I bought my dad this exact Rocky anthology. This was before the actual Rocky Balboa and all the Creed movies. And I bought him this set for me to watch. And so Rocky's style was to let them, if you don't know this, Rocky Balboa was a left-handed boxer. He was just some guy who just kind of did life and received the chance to go fight the champion of the world in the heavyweight boxing world in an exhibition fight. Well, Rocky missed that last part, and Rocky took it seriously. And he came out, and Apollo Creed had no idea what hit him. But Rocky's style was to let them hit him in the face long enough, and then in the final rounds, in an amazing, crazy turn of events, he would somehow come out in a dramatic, exciting victory. So just take a bunch of hits to the face, a couple shots to the body, and you can be a champion as well. And it's not, again, in this anthology, but in the next movie, the Rocky Balboa movie, he has a quote, and he's interacting with his son. And you probably are familiar with this quote. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. And so Jesus took the hits all the way to the mat. And then God entered the ring and picked him up with satisfaction and said, I love you, son. That's crazy to me. And so if you look just real quick at Luke 22, Jesus has had a million people had heard this rabbi was coming to town. It wasn't a surprise that this Jesus guy was a character that people just kind of maybe heard about. No, people knew. Jesus had a following. Jesus had a whole lot of knowledge coming 
ahead. And he was in town for the festival of Passover. He's in town, and he's performing miracles, and all this work is going on. And people are celebrating, they're enjoying drink and food, family and friends. And then they heard that this Jesus guy, he was arrested. It's kind of weird. He's doing a lot of good. But when the morning the next day came at 9 a.m., the ram's horn sounded, a part of the festival. And the priest sacrificed the lamb. And just outside the city walls, three men were hanging on a cross. Three hours later, around noon, the sky goes mysteriously dark. And for those six hours, the ultimate lamb was suspended between heaven and earth, slain and hanging for all to see. And so the Passover lamb of Jesus put a massive exclamation point in the, ma- in the Passover festival. And so at 3 p.m., the entire city goes completely silent in anticipation of the next ram's horn to be blown, the next lamb to be sacrificed and blood spilt. And the only thing you can hear at that 3 p.m. mark is a man on the Mount of Golgotha crying, Nishlam! The phrase means it is finished, but it also means the debt is paid in full. The Greek word prototokos refers either to someone that is first in order Or it could refer to someone who is preeminent in rank. And in Jesus' case, he was both. The same where the firstborn male would be slain, Jesus was the prototokos, and it is his blood that was spilt that actually has the power to save others from eternal death. And so that is the Passover. That is the Eucharist. That is the good grace gift. I've got one more story and then one more thing to say. This is a story written by John Piper to express the pleasure of God in the death of Jesus. Once there was a land ruled by a wicked prince, and he had come from a foreign country and enslaved all the people of the land and made them miserable with hard labor in his coal mines across the deep canyon. He had built a massive trestle for the trains They carried his slaves across the canyon to the mines each morning, and it was heavily guarded. Two men were still free in this land, one old and the other young. They lived on an inaccessible cliff overlooking the trestle, and they hated that trestle, and they resolved together to blow it up. They planned and they prayed, and they reminded themselves of the reality of heaven. And the night for the deed came. Their hearts were pounding with joy. It was a hard plan. It would be possible to time, it would be possible to time the guard's trek so that the explosive could be carried quickly to the vulnerable spot on the trestle. But it is certain that the man would be seen on the way back. To make sure the trestle blew up, the young man would detonate it by hand on the trestle. But they believed in heaven. And they loved the people of the land who were enslaved. And so even the sacrifice made their hearts leap with joy. And the hour came. They folded their map, stood from the table, and embraced each other. When the young man got to the door, he turned with the explosive on his back, looked at the old man, 
and said, I love you, Father. And the old man took a deep breath with joy and said, I love you too, son. And so in Jesus' life and death, we find a full expression of God's justice where sin is punished. And we see a full expression of God's faithful love where God gave his own son to bear that punishment. God's law says you are guilty of sin against a holy God. Justice demands your life. And Jesus answers, take my life instead. So death is here. We've had sin, which is our death. We've had the crucifixion, which is Jesus' death. And we're going to end it with another heavy ending as we look ahead to what is to come. The disciples were lost and confused. The Romans were quite confused. But God was not. He wasn't sitting on the throne, oh shoot, Jesus, that was too much, that wasn't what I meant. He says, I love you, son. Now's the time. So maybe now's the time for you. Maybe you are saying, this is what I needed to hear. Maybe you're saying, I've heard this a million times, Andrew, move on. But maybe now is the time, maybe now is the spot where you say, Jesus, I have a need. Jesus, I am so desperate for something to be different. And maybe you've already given your heart to him. Maybe this is the first time and you never have. Maybe you're saying, I need a turning back to you, God. Because the only way for you, for me, to have forgiveness and eternal forgiveness is to accept the work of Jesus, what he did on the cross, ask him to forgive our sin and submit our life to him. Not just Sunday mornings, not just in our tithes and our money, everything is his. And so accept Jesus today. If you have already accepted him, let's give him the worship that he deserves. Next week's coming. The resurrection is the most exciting part of the story. I hope you come back next week to be a part of that. Easter Sunday. It's going to be a fun Sunday. Let's pray. Jesus, as we move from here God, may we not be shut off to your work. God, may we not be shut off to your doctrine and theology and just get weirded out by all the different words and phrases and languages and names. But God, is there something in our spirit, in our soul, in our inner person that says, God, there's something about you that I need. I know that what I've tried, I know that there's a need for something different. And maybe what I'm working on right now, maybe it is going okay. God, are we willing to believe that the story that you have put in place that is in motion that we are experiencing is a better story than the one that we can come up with? If we buy into you, can life be different? Can we go about things in your way? God, we submit our wills to you. We sacrifice ourselves. We die to ourselves so that you may live in us. God, thank you that you took pleasure in your son. And somehow, there's pleasure in his death. And there's infinite pleasure and glory in his resurrection. We love you, Lord. Amen.
So we're so glad that you were with us today. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or your preferred podcasting app. Be sure to rate us so other people can know about the podcast.